we are communing together and breaking bread together. So hopefully you have had a chance to grab the communion elements. As we close, I won't lead us directly through or we'll all take in the same moment, but it feels fitting with the topic today that as, as we close and as I pray for us, as we then move into a meal, that we would mostly all partake in communion at the Lord's table today. And I hope you'll see why, but keep that in mind. And at some point, if you, if you missed those elements on, on the tables in the back, you're welcome to, to find them at some point in the next few minutes as we move through the beginning of a three-part series. I'm choosing to step out of Mark for, for now and lead us into the Christmas season. And I think to do so in a unique way. We'll see, of course. It had to be a unique thing. And you'll... You reserve judgment on on the process, but I hope you will see uh, some of the relevance and the application I've been stirred on this year as I've been journeying. Christmas is 20 days away. What does it feel like? Here's the image that came to mind. You're on that roller coaster for the first time, and you're going up the hill, and it's click, click, clicking to the top. Are you excited? And you'd like to speed it up if possible, that slow climb as it gets higher and higher. Or are you anxious and now think it's a total mistake and want to get off at all costs, but now, you know, you're strapped in and there's no speeding up and there's no slowing down. What we can do is take deep breaths and say our prayers and it will be here sooner than we think and probably over more quickly than we think and we'll all make it through. It's a frantic, full, too much to do, then time to do it kind of season for many of us. It's just what it seems to be. Why, why does it all always, always get filled up? Well, that's an amazing opportunities to connect with family and to serve and to bless. And it is a part of this season. But we need to find the rhythms of peace and rest as we reflected this morning. I hope that as we gather in, in all the ways that we're gathering in this season, but even specifically on these Sundays, they become a chance to pause, to take those deep breaths, to say our prayers and to receive the gift and the majesty and the miracle of Christmas and to receive it, we pray, in a new way for those of us that have walked through many Christmas seasons over our lives, that it would be new again, amazing again of what God has done, which is part of the reason for the uniqueness of the way I want to approach Christmas in these next three Sundays. May we sing together, share, pray, Reflect and remember who God is and what he has done. My approach is not from the manger in Bethlehem, but from a tent in the Egyptian wilderness. And what could an ancient tent possibly have to do with Christmas? Maybe more than you would think. If Christmas is truly the story of God coming to dwell with his people, then what happened in a tent in the Egyptian wilderness is vitally important to the whole story. In fact, this story of God coming to dwell with his people goes far further back than when Mary and Joseph met the angel Gabriel. It goes all the way back to the beginning. It's truly our origin story and the story of all of Scripture. God coming to dwell. This is how the whole book begins. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness 
was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said with his first words, let there be light. Our God is a revealing God at his nature. It's the first and primary thing that he wanted to do. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. I'm not going to preach the entire scriptures this morning to your chagrin. But if you know the story and remember it, God then planted a garden and formed it and filled it with life and life abundant. It was meant to be at least a picture of the eternal dwelling of God with humanity forever in life and in abundance. And in that garden was, a, was the tree of life that would sustain or represent the sustaining power of God for life as they trusted him and partook in that and all of his other gifts. But then something went tragically wrong, and you probably know that part of the story as well. But not only did God fill a garden with abundance and then place humanity within it, he dwelled there with them. We see in Exodus 3 verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was walking. It was his regular rhythm. And they were, they were not surprised at that. Now, in that case, in Genesis 3, they then hid out of fear because of what they had done. They had broken that intimacy, that communion that they had with God, their creator, and they tried to hide from him as if that were possible. But they were used to his presence, his proximity, and his intimacy because he dwelled there with them. Sin, all sin at its core, breaks intimacy and fellowship with God. And at its core, and what is pictured in that first rebellion of of taking the fruit of the tree that they should not have eaten from, at the core of that is doubting God's goodness and his blessing and his promise to them. Believing a lie, trusting one's own perspective, pursuing life in another direction, in another place, in another thing, in another pursuit. That's the, that's the core of all sin. It's to break relationship and fellowship with God, our creator, who desires to dwell with us. It's to break it through doubting and distrusting and turning from him. Ever since that moment, God has been at work pursuing us to restore communion that he would dwell with his people, but not enforce himself upon them, but to draw them. This is the story of the entire scriptures. God's love and pursuit of his people, that he would restore communion and dwell with them forever. It's the hope that we celebrate at Christmas time. God has come to dwell. It is a new beginning a re-beginning. The Apostle John makes this very clear and picks up the very same wording and language when he begins his gospel. In John chapter 1, you'll hear it because we just read it from Genesis. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. It separates, but the darkness has not grasped it, understood it, or overcome it. Skipping down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man and woman was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Though he came to that which was his own, his own did not receive him. Is that not also a commentary on Genesis? God was in the garden, and though he had made all things and made them good, Adam and Eve did not recognize him for truly who he was, nor receive him. And so it continues. That's the story of humanity and who God is in his pursuit. And now here's verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God. He was renewing and redeeming and calling back. And then verse 14. This is the central text inspiring these next three messages. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John was and is calling us to remember our history and our heritage, our origin story that gives us reason for why we are here, for who we are and who we're meant to be and what hope we may have for the future if this is who our God is. Jesus is the word from the beginning who gives us this hope because he has come. He's the light of the world, the one and only, full of glory, grace, and truth. He has come in the flesh to dwell with humanity. He is Emmanuel, which literally means God, with us. He is the fulfillment of the entire story. Yes, Christmas is kind of a big deal. And so let us not only be distracted by the external lights and franticness and excitement and joy, as well as challenge and hard things. Let us center again on Emmanuel, God with us, and the reason for the story and our celebration. For the rest of this message and the next two weeks, I want to consider Jesus from a Jewish perspective. After all, he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, and these writings we have in the, what we call the New Testament or New Covenant were primarily written to a Jewish audience for the most part and to some that were at least very well conversant in Jewish history and story as God was expanding his story and his pursuit and his love for all peoples and making that clear. If you were a Greek-speaking Jew in ancient Palestine and you heard those words that I had just read from John you would have heard them in a different way than we likely hear through our English translation. In fact, some is lost. In those three words, the, made his dwelling. Those three words are one word in the Greek, and it's the word skene, which literally means tent. Jesus, the word, became flesh and, one word, tented among us. That's a strange thing to say. And if it was translated that way, it would at least make us pause and say, why is, why, is it, why is it said that way? What is John about? 
Why doesn't it say something like made his home among us? Came to be with us. John could have easily chosen words to convey that truth, but he chose this this word that means tent. Well, it was the word that was translated again and again throughout the first covenant, sometimes called the old covenant, but it was truly the first covenant of God with his people. It's translated tabernacle again and again throughout the Jewish story. So if you were a Greek-speaking Jew, you would hear that word and immediately associate it with tabernacle the primary way it is used throughout the scriptures. So that literally that phrase would be, Jesus became flesh, took upon him flesh, and tabernacled among us. And that changes everything. And so to truly receive the majesty and miracle of Christmas more richly and fully, We need to understand why John would have used that language and what he was pointing back to because Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire story. Maybe we'll have a more rich understanding of who Jesus is in these next few weeks by coming through the ancient tabernacle and tent which Jesus is fulfilling. The tabernacle was the most important structure in Jewish history. It was the prototype of their now temple. And the temple was the place where God was. It's where heaven and earth met, they believe. Not just where you go to worship, but the place where God dwelt among them. It was the holy place established in Jerusalem. But prior to that, it was first a tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness that was mobile as God's people were being moved from an enslaved history into a free future. God was, per, was walking with them, dwelling with them, forming them, and leading them to give them a land. This becomes also a picture for all of humanity, that God is rescuing us out of slavery, out of oppression, leading us, dwelling with us, forming us, and making us to give us an eternal home, a place forever with him. So this story is so vital as, as God's people would remember throughout their regular rhythms and feasts and pilgrimages, this story of God's rescue of their, of their enslavement in Egypt under Pharaoh through Moses into the wilderness to establish them, to give them his word, to give them his law, to make them, to teach them to trust him and walk with him, which was a journey, a longer one than it should have been. And so we too can relate and resonate. So there's so much in that word, tabernacled. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled with us. The tabernacle was first described in the book of Exodus. Exodus tells that story of God's deliverance And back to the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it had been about four centuries of enslavement for God's people in Egypt. A lot of time had passed, but God was going to fulfill his promises and lead them back. Many of you, even if you have a cursory understanding of Scripture and never even have read the book of Exodus, you may know some of its famous stories from media over the years 
of who Moses was to lead the people, of the parting of the Red Sea, of the manna from heaven, the Ten Commandments when Moses met on the mountain with God, the golden calf fiasco that disrupted the plans and God redeemed and renewed them. All of these described in Exodus, but nearly half of this long book centers on the instructions and the construction of this famous tent, of this tabernacle, of the dwelling place of God with his people. It consumes entire chapters in painstaking detail. In fact, chapters 25 through 30 are repeated again very similarly in chapters 35 through 39. Why the repetition? Why the need to put all of this instruction and detail into this text? And if you're like me and you have read this book a number of times, you get to these parts and you say, yeah, I'm a speed reader now. I can get through this in a glance. I don't know what this possibly has to apply to my life. The instruction of an ancient tent that never needs to be reconstructed because Jesus is that tabernacle. So we sometimes move quickly and fly by. But for the, for the Jewish people, this was their story. This was the miracle of God coming to dwell with them and remain with them. And so the details of that process brought the gravity, the weight of, of God's presence to his people and how meticulous it was to be. In Exodus 40, verse 34, this is the end of the story as it's been culminating to this point where the tabernacle is finished and God comes to dwell. Here's what it says. The cloud descended and covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not even enter the tent because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory filled it to full. This should make us reminisce what we just looked at in Mark 9, to Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain when the cloud descended and the glory of God was there. And who was also there but Moses? This bridge of God with humanity coming to in fullness in Jesus. And God saying, this is my son. Listen to him. He had already come upon him in his spirit. I wonder, though, what you're picturing if, you're, if, if you haven't ever Googled and looked up images and kind of tried to understand the dimensions of this ornate tent. A lot of things have come into mind. Maybe you grew up simply camping in the mountains. It's not that kind of tent. The, the, the tent that most of us share now a recent history with in field church. Get that in your mind. Except that was bigger. Take one of those tents. We had two 20 by 40 tents back to back, creating a 40 by 40 square. Take one of those tents, and that's a, the approximate size of the tabernacle, a little bit narrower and a little bit longer with covered, full covered sides, probably a little bit taller also, about 15 feet, feet tall, but close. Get that picture in mind with fine twined linens and hardwood poles overlaid with gold and with silver and intricate weavings and ornate furnishings. A ton of gold was used to overlay the dense hardwood acacia wood. Literally, over a ton of gold was hammered into place. Three tons of silver and a massive amount of copper. So rough estimates of the equivalent today, if this was trying to be reconstructed, would be over $70 million. This was an extravagant, extravagant tent. 
And the, the construction was spirit-inspired. This is the, the first time that the scriptures say God's spirit came and filled and empowered any individuals. Not that it didn't happen before, but the first time it is mentioned in scripture, it is at this point with Bezalel and Aholiab, two names that I'm sure you are so familiar with. God's spirit filled them. They got to be the first ones mentioned, to be filled with the spirit of God. And who were they? They were artists, craftsmen, tailors, and they oversaw the construction of the tabernacle. It also says many others were filled with the spirit as they came and offered themselves to do the work to construct the tabernacle. God was so involved in this process as he was preparing to come and to dwell. And God didn't need an ornate place, an ornate temple. This was for God's people to meticulously work, to give their best, their very best, to make a place to meet with God because he was worthy of it all. And coming into his presence was no casual thing or flippant thing. You came in with significant reverence and awe. The instructions then given to the priests who would serve in the temple were just as detailed as the construction of the tabernacle from the ornate garments that they would wear and their vestments and their adornments. And then the process that they had to go through, ceremonially cleansing, bringing offerings and sacrifices, taking blood and water and anointing oil that actually had its own instructions of how to make it and anointing all of the furnishings and the tent. The process was meticulous and detailed because God was coming to dwell with his people. It took great care and intentionality. The tabernacle also served like a second garden of Eden. If God dwelt in the garden, and that picture is of his intimate connection with his people, and he's coming to dwell again, it makes sense that so many of the images and symbols would be similar to make us think back to a restored communion with God. So that inside this tabernacle, there were two rooms or two parts. There was a separation of a large curtain and a a smaller section called the, the most holy place or the holy of holies. And inside of that place was a chest. Sometimes it's been called the Ark of the Covenant, but those are two very different words. Noah had an ark. This was more like a golden chest with an ornate lid on top of it, covered with with two cherubs that had wings, so these angelic beings with wings covering the, the lid of this chest. And inside that chest was the tablets that had the Ten Commandments that represented God's word. Just as God had spoken his word to his people in the garden, and dwelled with them. God's word is now in this place, in this second garden, imaging him. And those cherubs with wings outstretched are to make us think of the winged cherubs guarding the garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and protected against coming in to the tree of life, lest they live forever in their sinful state. In fact, the scriptures don't mention cherubs again until this point in the story in Exodus 25 to make us think back to the garden. And now there is still a limiting factor to come into full communion, but God is making a way. He's restoring them back. He's drawing them back. But the priest, the high priest, could only enter that place one time a year on the Day of Atonement. It was a restricted place. But rather than never be able to enter, as in the garden, God is making a way. He's opening it up. He's bringing back his people. In the second larger section inside were three furnishings. A golden lampstand, 
an altar for burning incense, and a golden table that held the daily bread of the presence. And in each one of these is image and make it, to make us think of the garden and God's dwelling place. The golden lampstand is in the shape of an almond tree to represent life and the tree of life and to give light just as God gave light and life to humanity in the garden. The altar of incense meant that there, morning and evening there was a fragrant aroma filling the place just as in the garden would be full of fragrance in the fruit and flowers of the tree and the smoke that would rise reminded us of God's presence because he is spirit and he is often like vapor and it reminded the priests as they were in the inside of the tabernacle that God's presence was near. The table represented provision and communion. Just as God had always provided and given abundantly in the garden, he provides daily for our needs. And that bread of his presence is what we need. But just as the tabernacle and its furnishings make us look back to God's provision and dwelling, they are also a sign and a symbol of what's to come. And they always, they always were for God's people. They looked forward to what he was going to do, where he would come and dwell fully with his people, not, not in a garden, not in a tent, but in his world, when all restrictions would be removed, when all people would be able to receive him, when not just the priests and a few times a year in a special ritual, but all people would have access to his presence, and he would dwell even within us. That's the miracle of Christmas and what we celebrate and that is why this is such a loaded phrase. He came and tabernacled amongst us. And you can maybe start to understand why some of the Jewish people took offense at that statement. Because the tabernacle and then the temple was the place of God. And you, John, are saying that this man, Jesus, is the tabernacle who has come to dwell, making the old obsolete borderline blasphemy. And that's why so many struggled to come to him and receive him and accept that. But those who did, he gave the right to be his children, to be adopted in and to be filled. You know, the author of Hebrews speaks of the tabernacle as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly places. Hebrews 8, 1, just as the earthly tabernacle had priests who served, we now in Jesus have a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Our priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Not that it's not important, but that's meant to show us something more and something bigger. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern that I show you, because it was imaging what God was doing in the heavenlies. But the ministry of Jesus has received, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the former one. And it is founded on even greater promises because God is expanding what he is going to do to dwell with his people forever. 
The authors of the New Testament or New Covenant understood that Jesus had come to fulfill this entire story. And they looked for him in all of the story, in all of the law, in all of the prophets, and they found him dwelling there. This is how Jesus taught his followers to study the scriptures, to look into the scriptures. If you remember Luke 24, 27, following his resurrection, he's walking on the road with his disciples. And it says, beginning with Moses, whether that's the writings of Moses or the time of Moses, but beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. He started opening their eyes to see him through the entire journey, his dwelling place. And no doubt they found him in that Exodus story. He was there with them and they found him in the tabernacle. And there's really no end to the symbolism that we can find in Jesus. We don't need to press it or force it. It is there and it enriches our story because Jesus himself said, I am in the entire story with you. There I am. There I am. So that they found him as as the tabernacle. John said he tabernacled with us. He is the dwelling place of God. He is like that whole thing. He is the temple as well. He is the high priest then who serves, not just the place, but he's the mediator now between humanity and God who has access to that holy place, by the way, not just once a year, but whenever he likes because he has offered himself fully once for all. Hebrews 7, 27, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And not just his body and his breath, but his entire life. He gave his entire self to humanity that they would know God and know that he dwells with them. He is seen, Jesus is seen and imaged in the furnishings of the tabernacle, in that lampstand, in that altar of incense, the pleasing aroma to God, and in the table with the bread. This morning, I don't have much time remaining to focus on the symbolism of the table to the full extent, but I will say a few words as we then prepare our hearts to break bread together today and receive communion today. The table always in God's story represents fellowship, family, friendship, communion, community. It's vitally important for God's people. The table seems appropriate to look at today as we are about to share a meal together and extend and break bread with one another. The table in the tabernacle held the bread of the presence. Every day, the priests would meticulously prepare this bread and place it upon the table as a reminder of God's provision for them, symbolizing the manna that came from heaven and God's daily provision for them in a miraculous way. They could always trust him. This is why God's people, even today, give thanks when they eat and they celebrate God's provision. He is the source of life. I want you to consider the priests going through this ritual every day, taking grain, perhaps even being the ones to grind it into a meal, to bring it together with oil and with salt, to form it and knead it into certain cakes, and then to meticulously prepare the fire of the oven and watch it and tend it so that it is not too hot to burn and it can bake it at just the right amount that it would be golden and pleasing. It was their very best. They gave their best in this daily ritual to celebrate God's provision and to to bring the bread into the tabernacle. We will perform, I'm assuming you will perform many rituals this season of preparations 
Maybe that's a meal that you're hosting. Maybe it's a, 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 something you're bringing to a meal, as many of you did today. Perhaps it's simply the mundane task of packing your kids' lunch every day or preparing a breakfast or yet another dinner for the family. As you go through that process, you can see it redeemed because God has come to us and everything can be redeemed and renewed with an attitude of heart that brings our best offering to serve and to bless others, even if it's unrecognized by so many. God sees the preparation of our heart and we can worship him through that act. All can be renewed and made holy because God has fulfilled all things. And then we see that in the bread, Jesus' provision. So as we eat much probably in this season, may we not only receive his provision and enjoy him, we see the spiritual connection. Jesus famously quoted from Deuteronomy 8 when he confronted the enemy in the, in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, 3. God fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They had a restricted diet to teach them hunger and thirst for God. That's what he was teaching. As he was providing and sustaining them, he was teaching them this. And God's people are commanded to feast multiple times during the year, which for us, we say, how am I going to work that extra, those extra pounds off in the new year? But for God's people, it was an act of trust to indulge and eat more, not knowing where tomorrow's provision was going to come from. He was saying, feast and celebrate me and trust me, I will provide abundantly. Believe me. Jesus is the bread of life. John 6, 32, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So as we eat, probably more than we need, let's make the spiritual connection and receive the bread of life, his provision every way, and to celebrate him. And before you mishear me and run out and say, my pastor told us we are supposed to be gluttons this season as a spiritual act of worship. <laughs> we are also meant to have to limit our intake, to have times of fasting. I would encourage you to, to find ways to fast a meal, maybe a day in this season, to increase that hunger, not just as a counterbalance to the eating, but to increase the spiritual hunger and thirst for communion with God, to receive him and engage him and embrace him. These are the rhythms that we're meant to have. The table in the tabernacle also, maybe above all, reminds us of the communion table. When Jesus sat with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified, he sat at a table celebrating the Passover, God's rescue and deliverance out of slavery, the same story, but he now fulfills it. He's making it new with his friends. He takes bread and breaks it, giving thanks, and says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Receive me. And then he took the cup holding it up, the fruit of the vine, hopefully some good wine, and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink, receive. So that at that meal, 
Jesus was establishing the new covenant. He was fulfilling all things at the meal, at the table. His crucifixion and resurrection sealed it, guaranteed it. And don't mishear me. That is vitally important. But just as the tabernacle had a table and the altar of sacrifice was outside the tent, but inside was a table, Jesus established the covenant at that table with his disciples. This is, listen to that language, this is the new covenant in my blood. Receive it. He was saving them and us at the table, at communion, and upon the cross. The cross sealed it, guaranteed it. Language fails me me here, but this is a vitally important connection between the two. And the disciples missed it. They didn't fully grasp at all what he was doing in that moment and ultimately what he was going to do upon the cross and through the resurrection. But as we commune with God and receive him, we are receiving the covenant that he has established. And it's not either or, it's not one without the other. They are both vital. But he said, this is the covenant in my blood, the new covenant poured out for you. Take and eat, take and drink. I think it's vital that we see in the tabernacle, in the dwelling place of God, there was no throne set up. There was a mercy seat where God spoke, but there was no throne. There was a table with bread. There was no scepter for power for a king. There was an invitation to eat and to commune with God. May we do so today as we receive his communion, as we break bread and we eat together. We want to be a church without walls. I can't see a greater way to break down walls amongst people than to eat together, to break bread together. You eat with friends and with family. You welcome all. Perhaps as we consider our meals and our gatherings throughout this season, we would be humble enough to pray, God, is there someone you're inviting me to invite to a table and to break bread? Maybe it's one of the least likelies. And will we be bold enough to follow and represent the heart of God, mercy, grace, and generosity? What is he asking us to come as an offering to him today? We may surprise us as we come to his table that we would find Christmas tabernacling amongst us. May it be. Catherine, Tommy, why don't you come and prepare to lead us in response, and we'll pray. God, prepare our hearts to receive you, that we might receive others, and that we might welcome your presence with us. We desire to see your glory, the glory of the one and only who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you that you are the bread of life, that you are the table that welcomes us all, and that you have established the new covenant in your body and your bread. We take and we partake as we trust what you have done and will do. Unto your glory and for our joy. 
Amen.